If Theology Nara has blessed you or challenged you or encouraged you on some level, then I would like to invite you to consider supporting the show by visiting Patreon dot com forward slash theology in the raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to various kinds of premium content like monthly Q&A podcasts, the ability to ask me questions and dialogue with other Patreon supporters. Uh, gold level supporters are able to participate in monthly Zoom chats where we talk about uh, pretty much everything. Those chats can get pretty wild sometimes and I absolutely love it. So join the uh, Theology and Raw community by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Theology and Raw. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. Do Christians have a theological mandate to support the modern uh, state of Israel? That's the question we're going to wrestle with in this forthcoming conversation. I could think of few people more qualified to help us wrestle with this question than Dr. Gary Burge. Uh, Gary Burge uh, did his PhD at the finest university in the world, namely Aberdeen University, where I also did my PhD. We didn't study together. He's a couple of years, maybe a few years older than I am. But uh, Gary did his PhD in New Testament studies under I. Howard Marshall at Aberdeen University. He taught at uh, Wheaton College for over 25 years and then Calvin Theological Seminary, where he has just recently retired. And I say Gary is highly qualified to help us wrestle with this question because he's written uh, two books on the question of the the promise of the land within biblical theology. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Land. What does Jesus have to have to say about the land promises of the Old Testament? And then he also wrote another book called Whose Land, Whose Promise, which also wrestle with, wrestles with the land promise in light of um, ongoing conflicts in the so-called land of Israel-Palestine. Um, so we do focus on the question of the land promise in the Bible. We do also spill over into conversations surrounding the current conflict in Israel-Palestine. And uh, as with any guests that I have on, Gary is going to bring his own background, his own perspective. And I don't, uh, on in this podcast, in, in this platform, in, in Theology and Raw, I, I never ask people to simply sign off on uh, what people are saying, but simply to listen, to engage, to wrestle. We are all about having curious conversations with a diverse range of thoughtful people. And Gary is certainly a very thoughtful person. I enjoyed this conversation very much. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Gary Burge. Gary, uh, thanks so much for joining me on Theology in Ra. I'm really excited about this conversation. Great, Preston. It's wonderful to be here with you. So you are an expert in, uh, a, we'll call it land theology. What does the Bible say about the uh, the land of Israel? We'll just call it the land of Israel for, for now. Um, and uh, But tell us briefly, who uh, who are you and how did you get it? How, how did you become interested in this question about the land uh, promises in the Bible? Sure. Yeah, so great question, because I think all of our academic interests interests really do flow from some experience we've had at some place along the line. So um, like you, Preston, I have a PhD from Aberdeen, Scotland, and uh, um, I've taught New Testament for quite a long time, uh, about 40 years, actually. I have been at uh, places like uh, Wheaton College for 25 years, and I moved to, uh, in 2017, to Calvin Seminary, ended up being the dean there, and uh, so, and I just retired a couple of months ago. So, I saw that, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. A lot of our generation is are moving to different places. So I'm still active in the, the whole discipline and um, 
uh, really do enjoy it. What? How did I? Um, I came into New Testament studies uh, through my work in Aberdeen, um, but I came into New Te- to to Middle Eastern interests and the whole question about Israel and Holy Land. Because when I was um, a college student, I was selected to be an exchange student. Um, I was studying politics uh, as an undergraduate. I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, University of California sent me to the Middle East for a year. It was nuts. And the Lebanese Civil War started when I was there. Wow. Um, School got closed. We didn't know what to do. So instead of going home, we all hitchhiked around the Middle East. (laughs) I don't advise that to anyone. We hitchhiked around Syria, Turkey, all over Lebanon, Jordan. Then we just said, hey, let's go to Egypt. Okay, let's go get some cheap tickets. <laughs> Rode a train all the way down to central Egypt. It's really nuts. Anyway, um, and Israel, of course. We went all over Israel. And um, so I think there is something infectious about people's interests when they get into the whole Middle East. The Middle East puts a mark on you. A lot of people mm. will say that. And you are drawn back again and again. So over the course of my career, um, I have been back uh, at least 25 or 30 times. Wow. Um, I've uh, helped lead conferences in Baghdad, Iraq for Presbyterian pastors, likewise in Cairo, Egypt, Libya, Damascus, Syria. Um, so anyway, it's fairly extensive network. But the, the group that has drawn my attention the most have been the Palestinians uh, because they have a lively Christian community there. Yeah. Uh, worldwide, about 10% of all Palestinians are Christian, um, but things are so hard for them in Israel that uh, 8% of them have migrated, so it's about 2% now. Wow. So anyway, um, so there, there I am, a New Testament guy, and also somebody who has got extensive experience in the Middle East, especially with Israel and the Palestinians, and I'm, I'm, I'm breathing evangelical air because I'm at Wheaton College, for instance, and I am hearing theologies which actually are siding with one political view or another. Mm. And I'm asking myself, hmm, are these theologies uh, effective, especially when these theologies lead to the suffering of my Palestinian brothers and sisters in a place like Bethlehem or Nazareth? So um, out of all of that turmoil of New Testament studies, mm-hmm. living inside of the Middle East, having all this experience with the wars in the Middle East, frankly. Um, um, Like yesterday, I spent uh, an hour on the phone with a Palestinian Christian in Jerusalem, um, very good friend, and I just had him describe what is his life like on the street right now in Israel. Yeah, that's why. So this, this really evolved into an academic interest. But let me say this too. The person who really sparked this interest, I, I want to give him credit. It wasn't I, Howard Marshall, that I worked with. Instead, it was a man named Kenneth E. Bailey. Oh, yeah. And Ken Bailey, a very famous gospel scholar, works in the parables. He taught in Beirut for a number of years. I, I studied under him for half a year there. Um, but anyway, Ken and I became lifelong friends. And uh, we corresponded uh, extensively through the course of my career and also up until he died. Um, but there's a man, Ken, in whom you have this merging of uh, of a profound theology about um, about land and people and identity and and then also someone who is deeply invested in the Middle East itself. Uh, he spoke fluent Arabic. You know, uh, Ken Bailey also was a catalyst for a lot of my thought. So that uh, ends up uh, landing me writing a book like Jesus and the Land, which is really a matching uh, volume to the land in the Old Testament by Walter Brueggemann. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, this is in Britain and America. Uh, and uh, my goodness, I, I, I thought that this would be a very enlightening thing for all of my evangelical friends. But you publish a book like this and you suddenly discover you've stepped on a high voltage wire. and um um people don't take this conversation lightly and so i know full well that there will be people listening to this conversation with you preston and some are going to say wow gary you are so spot on thank you (laughs) and then there are other people who are going to say um you must have studied somewhere um in a very dark and desolate place in hades so um (laughs) <laughs> anyway, it's it's it is like black and white. It is like yeah. polarized, yeah. and so there will be some who will hate this and some who will love this, and that must mean you're right where you ought to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I actually want to come back to the psychology of that. That's an interesting question. Why is it so inflammatory? This conversation, but let's 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 go back to the beginning. And can you give us maybe what are the different views? Let's start there. The different options, the different views of uh, the, the land promise in the Bible. There might not. There, I'm sure there's probably more than just two. But like, give us maybe big picture stuff. What are the different yeah, views start, you're wrestling with? Yeah. yeah, let's do it with the larger picture. The question really has to do with covenant, and the question is: the land promises are connected to Abraham in the Old Testament. So the question is: is Abraham's covenant and its benefits still applicable? to those who are his blood descendants even today, namely modern Judaism and its expression in modern Israel. All right? That's one question. And there are many, many evangelical Christians that will say absolutely that the promises given to Abraham do not go away, and therefore therefore Abraham's covenant is still intact. Therefore, uh, the modern state of Israel can make um, a theological land claim. Mm -hmm. So yesterday, I just uh, went online. I, I won't mention who, but um, a very, very influential pastor in California. And that's exactly what he was saying. Gaza belongs to Israel. So if the Jews have to kill and push people out of Gaza, then that's their right. God will be on their side. Okay, that's the big picture. So it's really about covenant, and it's about Abraham. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other people who come along, and they say, well, not so fast, because what does it mean that the covenant we have with Christ intersects all of this? In other words, then two questions. The first is, who are the children of Abraham? Because it's the children of Abraham who are heirs. And everyone in New Testament studies has made a consistent case. It's the tradition of the church that Paul is saying Gentiles now become children of Abraham. Romans 4, Galatians 3. So that's the first question. So it isn't so simple. Attachment to Abraham is not by blood, but it's by faith. That's Paul. Um, The second question is, um, what is the locale? What is there a spiritual location, a locus, where God is at work? And um, therefore, is there this notion of holy land that Jews would have, promised land? And does the New Testament intersect that? And the answer is yes. We have this in the Gospels, Acts, we have this in Paul. And so therefore, Christians are saying, huh, well, this argument that anyone with a Jewish bloodline, therefore from Abraham, still can claim Holy Land. And secondly, this is only for Jews and Gentiles are excluded. Mm. Well, today, this is a raging conversation. 
and it has been engaged by no less than Michael Byrd, N.T. Wright, uh, Scott McKnight, um, and they are about to publish um, a brand new book that is coming out this year that is going to engage this thing directly um, because they're they're kind of unhappy about the way they've been treated on this issue. Where would they? I'm curious where they would. I, I thought. Well, yeah. Where, where, how would you describe their their position? Well, the thing is, is it. The question of land is only a secondary crater, um, but there's a larger explosion in the middle of it all. And it's the question of covenant. And it's the question of the relationship between Israel uh, and the church. Right. And so, therefore, is there continuity or is there discontinuity? That's the question. And, therefore, what you have to ask is, does – is the message of the New Testament an announcement that the Messiah has come for Israel, and therefore all the old wineskins are going to break. That's that's really the question. So let me let me frame it this way: a very important article written by James Dunn in 1998, um, and the title is awesome. It is Paul colon apostle or apostate, <laughs> <laughs> and the question is: inside of Paul's theology, does he leave? Jewish theology unperturbed? Does he leave it alone? Is it intact? And therefore, he doesn't believe that Jews without Christ are in any jeopardy. In other words, all of the Jewish theological system, therefore, stays intact and therefore is saving. Um, Those who are committed to another discussion called Paul in Judaism today, they are trying to make that case that Paul, therefore, is someone who simply has refined his Judaism without abandoning it. Okay, we all say that to a degree. But then there's another set of voices, and that's these guys who are going to say, no, um, there is discontinuity as well. The arrival of the Messiah has meant something uh, definitive, and therefore anyone who is going to detract from the exclusivity of the arrival of Christ demotes Christ. Yeah, that's what they essentially are saying. So therefore, something new has emerged in Christ. There is a new covenant which affects all of the other covenants. And if that's the case, then it puts on the table, on the corner of the table, but still on the table, the question of land. Because land is connected to Abraham through covenant benefit. Mm -hmm. But if Christ disturbs that, then, of course, everything is up in the air. Yeah. So it would, um, okay, no, that's super helpful. I, I just I, w- I want to jump in with my own. Th- well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna withhold uh, kind of my my thoughts in this whole discussion. Um, let's go back to the one the first view you articulated that would be um, I mean it would be common in, in dispensational circles, obviously right. mm-hmm. uh, Pentecostal I would say right Pentecostal yep. Yep, yep. circles. Um, so very different brands of evangelicalism, um, and yet you know similar focus on uh, you know they they might see things like 1948 the the when Israel became an official political state, they would see that as connected to biblical prophecy, correct? Um, oh, yeah. Many people who are in those traditions, then they're, in that time, they weren't, they're not really thinking along the lines of covenant and Abraham. They're simply, uh, this is a whole prophecy movement in the evangelical church that wants to say, okay, there's been this yearning for people for, for the, the reconstituting of God's people in the Middle East, in Israel, 
Um, this has been the prediction of the prophets of the Old Testament. Never mind, the prophets are actually referring normally to the return from the exile in Babylon. Right. But they saw 1948 and the establishment of the state of Israel as, yes, fulfillment of prophecy. And then 1967, that war in which Israel takes all of the land, um, that also then is the culmination of those expectations. Okay. Which, which, just just as an aside, Preston, it just strikes me as remarkable because the land promises in the Old Testament are always connected to covenant fidelity, right? All the time, and if you're not faithful to the covenant, um, then you are going to be removed from the land. It says in Leviticus, it'll spit you out. Yeah. So um, today, what we have is Christians making the claim that. This modern state of Israel, which was founded intentionally to be secular, it was, right. they did not even in its original founding documents want to put the name of God in. Here you have a state that has no national intention of interest or fidelity in the covenant, none whatsoever. In fact, um, we think that only roughly 20%, 25, 20%. Of Israelis are religiously active. That's what they call it. Are you religious or not religious? That means, are you going to synagogue? Do you recognize the Sabbath? That kind of thing. So it is a very secular country. Yeah. The vast majority is not religious. So therefore, I ask, if Jeremiah stepped into that scene, he would be puzzled to find people claiming a, 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 a lineage back to Abraham having no interest whatsoever in the covenant or God for that matter, and yet making a claim that the blessings of land and, and, and Abraham belong to them. That to me is yes. stunning. What what I, I think the would would people say yes, yes to all that, but then say, well this is kind of a uh preparation. Like this is kind of a first step toward you know, uh, Israel actually or J Jewish people now they're now in the land and at some point in the maybe near future they're going to actually come to Christ. The kind of Romans 11 thing, there's going to be this renewal, and this is kind of a first sign of that renewal. Is that what some people might... Because that does seem like your, your pushback to that is pretty clear. I think It's like, how do you argue against that? I think that's how they would yeah. get around that, right? That this is first... Uh, like a they first could. Day. I mean, some Messianic Jews will take that view, especially Christian Zionists will take that view. But I ask, well, where's the evidence for that? I mean, this is complete speculation. It is. All I do know is that in the Old Testament, there is a consistent message. If you ignore yeah. the covenant, yeah. if you do not live by covenant righteousness, you don't, and you're not worshiping God or interested in God, then out you go. It's very simple. There's no complicated math here. There are yeah. many. I, I stayed at a kibbutz. I've done archaeology in Israel. So right outside of a place uh, called Nofkinozar, there's a kibbutz, which is atheist, entirely atheist. No synagogue there. I ate actually in the hall with all of the residents, and um, I had great conversations. And they said, we don't believe in God. We don't believe he deserves our respect um, because of the Holocaust. I understand those feelings. I get all of that. But then I really came away and I thought, well, okay, so how do you stand? An atheist who has a cultural and, and, and uh, legacy, DNA, a legacy to Abraham, but, but has zero faith. Does that person, is that person then able to go to the West Bank and say, ah, my ancestor Abraham was promised this land. Now I'm going to take it away from yeah, you. Yeah. That's, yeah. That to me, a little seems like kind of crazy. An another argument in favor of that first view that, you know, I guess we could just come out and say we're, we're, we're 
we're not in agreement of is you, you, you have a language of, at least in English translations of uh, eternality, right? Especially around Abraham's covenant um, language of you're going to get the land forever. You're going to, you know, this will, you, you have a language that sounds pretty irrevocable with Abraham's covenant, which sometimes includes the land. Would that be accurate? I mean, there was, there's a, I didn't write down the verses, but I, I know there's some that I know people exactly point what to you're referring to. Yeah. Yeah. And my good friend, Old Testament scholar and Hebrew expert, John Walton has said, well, wait, not so fast. That word for eternity that you have in Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Hebrews didn't have this notion, philosophical notion of time without end. This is a very modern notion that we're projecting back on this word olam. So therefore, he says it means something which is permanent. So we have examples of that same word being used in the Old Testament in which God says this is going to be forever. And then five chapters later, God changes it. So it means something which is stable, permanent, strong. That's the notion here. This is John Walton. I'm simply channeling Walton. So we have actually put onto the Old Testament uh, something which is foreign to the Old Testament when we talked about eternal, eternal sort of presence like that. I I think Jonah was in the belly of the whale for an olam, right? Which was like three days. So it's, yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. Which means it was a really serious deal. That's the, what it means. It was it was substantial. That's a good translation. It is substantial. Substantial. Okay. So the promise yeah. I'm making to you is substantial. Okay. You also have at the end of Joshua. So this is another. Uh, I should, again, I should have noted these before I um, jumped on. But at the end of Joshua, of uh, chapter 23, 24, you have statements that sound like when they conquered the land, that these land the the specific land promises were sort of fulfilled. Like you took the, you have the land in fulfillment of everything the Lord has said. I think it's 24, 23 or something, or um, would you, yeah. How would you unpack? Is that what you would point to to say the land promises were fulfilled then, and then you stayed in land and then you ended up squandering it and then through exile. Well, I think the the promise, I want to say just in respect to my old Testament colleagues that the promise of Abraham that is blind in Joshua is a promise that has continuity throughout the Old Testament. So therefore, the return from the exile is also a a return to those promises. So all of that is fine. But what we also have embedded in in the provinces, uh, the prophets, is is that there is going to be a horizon on the current status quo. And Messiah is going to broker the nature of that horizon for the status quo. And so as a Christian— what I want to do is spend my energies working closely inside of the New Testament to see how does the New Testament announce the horizon has come. And therefore, all bets are off. And I mean, think about this, Preston, for a moment. Paul has just said in Romans 4, Galatians 3, that Gentiles are sons. He says sons, I'm afraid. Sons of Abraham. How can he do that? That is absolutely shocking. And then he says in Romans 4.13, he says, and the promise to Abraham was that he would inherit the world, not the land of Canaan. So in other words, Paul is reimagining what God is doing. God is interested in not the provincial preservation of a nation in the Middle East. God is interested in the restoration of his entire creation Mm -hmm. 
And therefore, what you have now is the inclusion of the Gentiles along with Jewish believers, and together the confluence of these two streams create the very people who will take the blessing of Abraham to the rest of the planet, Mm. the world. So, yeah, the New Testament has this universalizing interest when it comes to these. The the horizon has come. Messiah has arrived. And therefore, uh, all bets are off. The way I've worded it, and I'd love your thoughts on this, um, is that you have in Genesis, you know, one, two, and three, God has this plan for all of creation. He gives all of creation to Adam and Eve, his presence dwelling in Eden. And then when they sin, they get, they're exiled, you know? So you have land blessing, and then they are cursed in exile. And you have that same kind of land blessing, curse, exile, the very language now embedded in the Abrahamic promise. So like there's the, the discontinuity is instead of the creation creation as a whole, now it's the specific land of Israel, but they go through the same kind of blessing land, you know, inheritance, curse, exile. The book of Judges does the very same thing. thing. I mean, yeah. With Benjamin and uh, yeah. And Dan, the very same thing. You, you live unrighteously in the land, you lose your covenant land. That's it's very simple. Judges does it, yeah. Exile, yeah. But then the, the fulfillment, though, like you said, in the New Testament, is the same kind of thing. We are blessed by becoming children of Abraham once again. But um, right. uh, but the 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 in terms of the land component, it extends once again to all of creation, which is why you see that it's, yes. it's Romans four thirteen that the promises were That's given right. to Abraham that his inheritance. That his descendant, his descendants, including Gentiles, without being circumcised, which that, that's another because you have Gentiles coming into the covenant, promise yeah, of Gentiles yeah. coming in, but apart from circumcision, apart from becoming Jewish, that's that's one of the most shocking things yes. in the in the new uh, new covenant. Uh, exactly, but but, but Paul's yeah. argument in Romans four is that look, Abraham was not circumcised when these promises came. Oh right, yeah, he was a Gentile. So basically. therefore, yeah. you, <laughs> yes, yeah. okay, you said it, not me. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, I mean, he really does. Without circumcision, what is he? He's like a Gentile. So therefore, Paul is saying, really, no, what attaches you to the world of these promises is faith in Christ. Um, So therefore, he actually says, then in Romans 2, he says, so therefore, even if you're circumcised, your circumcision can become uncircumcision. So he's arguing that these markers that that the traditional religion has placed on the people of God now are dissipating at the horizon of these covenants. That it there's only one measure, and the one measure is: Are you attached to Christ, or are you not? Let me let me give you, uh, Preston, a really nice illustration of this. It is in John 15. Um, the Gospels, as I say in this little book, that you have to be careful at this time in the first century when you talk about land and politics. Huh. Almost like today, it's kind of funny, but um, you would be threatened in the first century by this. But anyway, in John, in the Old Testament, when uh, Isaiah, for instance, imagines what Israel is, Israel is a vineyard. This is used in the Gospels regularly. Israel is a vineyard, and 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 the people of God are like vines which were lifted out of Egypt, carried to the Holy Land, and planted. So the question of Israelite identity was always, are you planted in the Holy Land? That's always the question. And as you live in the Holy Land and you're well planted and you are fruitful, God will protect that vineyard with a wall. Okay? If you're not, God will tear down the wall and destroy the vineyard. It's very clear. This is Isaiah that I'm channeling here. 
Um, Jesus uses this in one of his parables, the parable of the vineyard, and he says, this vineyard will be taken away from you and given to others. That's astonishing language in the parable of the vineyard. But in John 15, Jesus is doing his own spin on Isaiah's uh, vineyard parable because he says the question is no longer, are you planted in the vineyard of God's holy land? That's not the question any longer. The only question is, do you see that Jesus is the one vine planted that matters? Mm. And the question for you is, are you attached to Jesus? In Jewish theology, the question of attachment and identity is rootedness in the geography, you might say. But in John's mind, in Jesus' mind here, the only question is, are you planted, are you grafted in to Christ because he's the only vine that matters? So what you have is a rearranging of what I call spiritual geography. Hmm a reimagining of spiritual geography. And so, yeah, that's, and I think when you read John 15 and you read the parable of the vineyard in the synoptics, and then you go back and you read Isaiah's vineyard parable, you see, oh my gosh, they are upending all of the metaphors. Is John 4 the neither this mountain nor that mountain does that play it into is. it as well? Because that is a very geographical exactly. concern, right? Which geographical place are we going to be worshiping? Oh, yeah. yeah. The Samaritan woman is exactly that in John chapter 4, where she wants to dodge his promies by saying, well, we worship up here on Mount Gerizim. I'm a Samaritan. And he says, and she says, you worship in Jerusalem. Yeah, we have two temples. There's a whole history of the rival temples between the Samaritans and the Jews. We get all of that. But the kicker is in John 4 is that Jesus says, the day is coming, that's the horizon, when there will be not worshiping in Gerizim or Jerusalem, but God is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. What that implies is the dissolution, the dissolving of one thing and the emerging of something new. That's what it implies. Those are the broken wineskins. So again, just to summarize, in case people are uh, trying to pull it all together, so like the the land promises that are still waiting to be fulfilled in the in the Old Testament are being fulfilled through all of creation, and they're being kind of reconfigured as is, is, is well. Is yes. that yeah? Um, right. exactly. Would it be? Mm-hmm. Is it is it, this might not be the best language, but this is the language some people use. Like you know, these land promises are not going to be literally fulfilled, but spiritually fulfilled. I don't even like the word spiritual because it, it does include creation. It's not like they're just a, a, a non-material idea. It's going to all well, the nations, right? Yeah, yeah, right. The plan, God's, God's program for his creation is restoration. Mm-hmm. That's God's program for his creation. And therefore, as I read the Old Testament, you can see that the agent of his restoration plan uh, begins with Abraham and with a tribe, Abraham's descendants. And that is the story I have in the Old Testament. But what I have in the New Testament is... This reimagining, which says the restoration of God's creation is for the entire world because all of the world and all people in the world are loved by God equally. So that puts in question whether or not there is any, shall I say, exceptionalism for one nation over all of the nations of the world. This is what Paul argues against again and again. It is exceptionalism. It's ethnic exceptionalism. 
And if you if you make that step with Paul, you have then just rearranged um, the way uh, God's program for the world is understood. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, this is the very basis of Paul's commitment to the Gentile mission in his life. Mm. Um, he can de- he can defend as he does why he's going to the Gentiles to conservative Jews back in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, um, who really want to have a mo- uh, more of a oh I don't know a very limited understanding of where God is at work. He should be at work in Jerusalem. He should be at work here in the Holy Land. But no, Paul says God's love for the entire world exceeds that narrow mission that you have in mind. Hmm, that's good. That's good. I So it was years ago, I was actually, um, I did a bit of work on Ezekiel for my PhD uh, dissertation. No, not on this issue at all, but it, 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 you know, I had one chapter on Ezekiel and, you know, a couple of verses, but you know how it goes. You got to know the whole book inside and out and everything. So yeah, I, I became yeah. just fat. It became my favorite book, honestly, at least of the Old Testament. And um, I went back uh, when I was teaching at uh, Cedarville University and taught like an upper level course on Ezekiel. So I had to work through it again. And it was really in in studying Ezekiel, I would say say 36 to 39 and then 40 to 48. 40 to 48 is the famous like temple prophecy, Uh, 38 to 39 with Gog and Magog and all this stuff, you know, and and. Um, it was through studying that and how the New Testament interprets those eschatological mm-hmm. passages that really yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. sealed the deal for me to basically agree with everything you're saying because these temple, the uh, you know fulfillment of land, Gog and Magog, Israel back in the land, this the, the so-called third temple or whatever, it's clearly being fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem and all these beautiful images of the of the restoration of creation as a whole. In fact, Revelation, um, is it uh, chapter 20? Um, mm-hmm. ref- you know, yep. Gog, in, in the literal translation in Ezekiel is Gog from the land of Magog, meaning Gog is a person, Magog is a land. And Revelation 20 says Gog and Magog, it, it, he refers to Gog and Magog as this kind of generic entity referring to the nations. So he clearly yeah. like just interprets it again not against, but he extends it in in a uh-huh. in, in a different direction than what if he, all you had was Ezekiel, what what right. you would think would he's happen. Universalizing. So, he's universalizing. Yeah. He's saying that the, he's the universal, great struggle. Exactly. He's universalizing. So the great struggle that you have focused in historic Ezekiel or back in that period of time in the Old Testament is a struggle between the surrounding nations and the nation of Israel itself. Right. And so the Revelation says this is a cosmic struggle. This is Paul in Ephesians 6. We are engaged not within the struggle to preserve God's program right now in Christ is not the construction of a national entity. It is broader than that. It is bigger than that. So our opponents are actually bigger, much larger. You know, Ezekiel talks a lot about the restoration of the temple. And of course, this is true in um, the book of Revelation. But That just reminds me of another great test case for this. If the Holy Land is still something sacred that is to be preserved, and I hear this all the time when I take all these trips to the the Middle East. If if, if the Holy Land is holy, certainly the temple is incredibly holy. (laughs) And therefore, the temple is at the very center of the Holy Land. Jerusalem is kind of like concentric circles. There's the temple, there's Jerusalem, and then out you go into the rest of the land. Okay, fine. Um, should Christians, therefore, believe that there will be the building of a temple today in Jerusalem, and this is something we need to pray for and work for? That's, that is a yeah. really hot topic. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
And my answer to that is no, it's completely wrongheaded. Because one clear thing, very clear thing the New Testament says, is that we have in Christ the replacement of the temple in Jerusalem. Right. In other words, all of the things we seek in our restoration with God that would have been facilitated at the temple now have happened in Christ and his death. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this dwelling among us, this, this, this place, this dwelling, this is the word for the tabernacle. This is the career contribution of Greg Beale, well-known New Testament scholar, that all of this temple language now is being used in the New Testament for Christ and the church. And therefore, if you imagine that somehow our agenda as Christians is the rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem, we are really, we've missed the mark. Well, and it's based on, yeah, a lot of it's based on Ezekiel, but again, the author of Revelation clearly says, and I say clear, I, 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 scholars are not supposed to say that. It's pretty clear to yeah. me. But anyway, people could disagree yeah. with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think I've written a blog a long time ago on all of the many, many, many allusions that Revelation 20 to 22 has that are linked back to um, Ezekiel 40 to 48. Um, so yeah, you have that passage. You have the, the, the glory leaves the temple before it's destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, and when does it right. return? Well, it returns in Jesus who called himself the exactly. temple and his body is the temple yes. and we're the temple. So it's like, yep. does that mean that in order to rebuild a physical temple, it's like you're going backwards. You're going against the you trajectory are. of scripture that <laughs> you, you, you are. Know, exactly. right? <laughs> if you plan to venerate some new building that's going to be constructed where the Dome of the Rock is in Jerusalem, that is so crazy. It is the very thing. I th Paul would just fall over just oh, yeah. in shock. It would just be so contrary to anything he ever imagined for this. Yeah. Yeah. So in Christ, we actually do have the temple who was fully realizing the presence of God. That is what the temple means. The temple is that locus where God's presence dwells and dwells. And therefore, it's a meeting place where the priests can broker that relationship with the rest of Israel. So Christ is that place, that locus, that, yes. that, yes. that space of that person. The incarnation means God has come into history and is present in history. That's the temple. What would be the the strong in your mind the strongest counter argument to your view? Let's go back and and let's um, let's try to steal man the so called dispensational view or or Pentecostal yeah. view or the view that I guess probably a lot of people I don't I don't think they 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 would have a airtight argument for it. It's just kind of in the air of of evangelicalism, right? I think a lot of people haven't really studied this out, but it's just like no. yeah, isn't are we supposed to support Israel? I mean, God loves Israel and made promises to Israel and we equate yeah. the modern state of Israel with biblical Israel. Um, right. Anyway, right. What, what would be the, in your mind, the strongest argument for like a dispensational sort of reading? Would it be taking these promises on a more, in a more literal fashion think, in I, the Old Testament or? Right. I think that what, well, let me just put it this way. Um, with my friends that I debate with, um, they believe that the strongest argument okay. is not necessarily a <laughs> theological <laughs> argument. <laughs> Okay. They believe that the strongest argument is entirely subjective in my mind. And that is, it is a miracle that Israel, uh, the, the regathering of Jews in the Middle East happened in the 20th century, that Israel became a state in 1948 and gained all of the land in 1967. All of this is a divine miracle. And therefore, you cannot contradict the evidence that you have at hand. So for most, honestly, it isn't a theological argument that comes my way. That, in their mind, is the strongest argument 
And I guess I would I would respond to that by saying, you know, that is a very limited understanding of history because people have made claims throughout history, human history, millennial claims that some way our time in history is a divinely ordained time, that our building of this nation from the Byzantines right up to the building of the British Empire, somehow God is blessing us. Um, manifest destiny, even of taking North America. This is something that God wants us to do. Mm. They're the Canaanites. We're the Israelites. Um, this kind of rhetoric is so dangerous, but it has been used so many times. So I ask my debate partners, I say, do you realize that the same argument has been used dozens of times throughout history? And what's so shocking to me is they just don't know this. They do not know this. Christianity has been millennial, as it were, that our time in history is now the fulfillment of prophecy that has been done again and again and again. Is that a strong argument to me? I don't think that's a strong argument at all, because the fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, is a secular state. This, by the way, is the problem that um, ultra-Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews in Israel have with the modern state of Israel. Most people don't know this, but there are many, many Hasidic Jews, the ones with the curls and the hats and all that, yeah. that don't support the state of Israel. Really? And Yeah, oh yeah. And the reason they don't is because they think, first, it is theologically bankrupt, which I've just explained, because they're not doing, they don't care about that theology. Um, they're concerned about moral issues, the moral conduct of Israel with its neighbors, especially with the Palestinians. Um, but uh, thirdly, they believe that the Messiah is the one who's going to call together um, this nation and make it holy and righteous again. And that has not happened. The Messiah has not come. So you have this whole segment of Israel that basically doesn't support Israel. It's it's pretty strange. Can you explain, so since we're on that, um, Orthodox Jews, Zionist Jews, and maybe even Let's throw in settlers. <laughs> These are three hot terms. Can you explain maybe that having spent so much time there and talked to people and, you know. Um, right, right. Yeah. What, what are the, what, what are these categories and, and are right. they related? Are they the same or. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to say Israeli, I probably don't have to, to explain that, although there are some complexities. Let me just take each of the terms quickly. And the, the first is an Israeli is a citizen of the state of Israel. But what most people don't realize is that 20% of Israelis are Palestinian. Right. They hold citizenship. They vote. All of that kind of thing. 20%. And they might be Muslim or Christian. Probably more Muslim, Muslim or but Christian. a decent They're amount. They're more Muslim than they are Christian and secular too. So you have all of these that are mixed together inside of the country. So um, this is what makes it ironic to these people that in 2018 um, – uh, Israel passed a law called the nation, the nation state law in which they said, this country is for Jews exclusively. Um, it will privilege Jews racially and it will privilege our language, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It would be the same with about 20%. The 20% of that population was immediately excluded by law. If America said this country is made for white people and we will privilege white people and we will privilege your history going back to Europe, immediately 20% of our African our African American neighbors would immediately wonder, how can you do that? That is incredible. Israel has done something that we would find deeply objectionable. Okay, so there are Israelis. It's a mixed population. 
standing over Israel is what's called Zionism, and that is an ideological commitment to the restoration of a Jewish nation, and it will draw from all kinds of important threads in Israeli history. So it will draw from persecution stories culminating in the Holocaust. It will draw from Old Testament promises. But the idea is we will create this nation, and it's going to be an ethnic nationalism. That's the key. Zionism is a nationalism based on race. All right? That is why some people get in a lot of trouble when they say, well, then that makes it kind of racist. I don't I mean, is it? That's hotly disputed today. Very disputed. We're an apartheid okay. state. This is everything you're saying sounds like apartheid, but I know that's highly well, disputed. And I, I, I it's this yep. is outside of my pay grade to determine whether it is an okay, apartheid so, state. But. Right. So the 20% uh, of, of 2 million, roughly, of Palestinians who live inside of Israel, they're not experiencing apartheid. Okay. They are they experience discrimination, and today it's really bad. But Israel has two million people in the West Bank and two million people in Gaza, four million altogether, who are living under Israeli military rule, don't have the freedom to travel, don't vote, don't they have no control over their lives whatsoever. And in Gaza for 16 years, they were completely blockaded. So those people are captured populations of Palestinians who are not integrated into Israeli society, but who are controlled by Israeli society. Now, when you have that, you're getting close to some kind of a form of apartheid, and scholars debate what form this is. Apartheid is the A word, though, that you are not allowed to say if you're in yeah. Israel. Yeah, and I, I don't... I. I, again, I don't know enough to determine whether right. this is or isn't. Yeah. I had on, you know, um, a Palestinian Christian, Daniel Bonora on the podcast, and he, he told a story of when um, Desmond Tutu and some South African leaders visited Israel. These are his words. Okay. You can fact check this. Yeah. Oh, whatever, I know. But I've read it too. He yeah, said that they were like, this is worse than what we have is what. Yeah, apartheid on steroids. That's what they said. People who lived so, under apartheid said that. So I, again, yeah, yeah, I, people, maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe the, maybe Desmond Tutu's wrong. Maybe whatever. There's another side of the story. I just I don't know. But that was yeah, interesting. The the Christian, um, you might say, liberation movements that are inside of the West Bank and Gaza. Those Christian intellectuals who were trying to figure out what is a Palestinian identity and how do we resist Israel. Um, they were consulting with the South African leadership all the time. And that is why these South African Christian leaders were coming to Palestine regularly, and they were wanting to help the Palestinians to understand, how do you do this nonviolently? Do you get accused of being anti-Semitic or justifying Hamas or downplaying all the violence that certain terrorists, I mean, Hamas and other groups have done toward the Jewish people? And how do you respond oh, to that? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course I do. Um, and in fact, if you have comments, I don't know, at the end of podcasts like this, it'll all show up there. And so what that is, that's an exaggeration. It's it's like uh, if if you say you don't like Alabama, that must mean you hate all Southerners. <laughs> so it's, it's a ridiculous exaggeration. Someone who would say that someone like me is anti-Semitic um, simply doesn't understand anti-Semitism uh, very well. And they don't understand what I'm saying very well. I'm saying nothing new. I'm saying things which uh, uh, Jewish um, uh, citizens of Israel have been saying for a very long time. 
Um, so, so yeah, so am I, no, I'm not anti-Semitic. Um, uh, I am echoing, um, Jewish criticisms just simply because you are going to lodge a moral criticism against Israel doesn't mean that you're anti-Jew. That's the very important. If you are critical of Zionism doesn't mean you're anti-Jewish. This is a correlation which Israel has tried to make very carefully that if you are against Zionism, as I said, which is based on race, or you're against um, sort of critical of Israel, then you're anti-Semitic and you belong to the Holocaust. Um, this is how my debating partners wish to silence the discussion. If you speak any more critically about Israel's activity in Gaza, for instance, the remarkable and breathtaking killing of now six or 7,000 people, to speak against that as disproportionate to what had happened on October 7th um, is to make you anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish. And I just think it's a, a fallacy. It is not a successful argument. What, what, what would you say to someone that says, well, they started it? Like that, It's not like Israel would have just, hey, we feel like bombing the heck out of Gaza one day and let's go kill six, 7,000 innocent people. It's like Hamas started this. In fact, they always start it. Like they, it's always them shooting the rockets over, and then Israel responds. And sure, it might be disproportionate. Sure, civilians get killed, but it's not like Israel doesn't start these things. How would how would you right. respond? That that was I, think, the, I was um, I mean if, if I'm totally honest. That was my perspective up until probably two years ago when I had a b better understanding, and I'm still I'm still very much a novice in the history. And the more I study, the more complicated the history is to me. So, but that I would have said the exact same thing. And I spent, I spent time yeah. in Israel and when I went to Jewish villages, everything is great. When I went to, you know, Palestinian villages, I got rocks thrown at the bus, you know? And it's like, well, how, you know, but again, I'm, I'm entering into a situation. I know nothing about at that time, you know, <laughs> yeah, 25 right. years ago, but yeah. Like every conflict, you have to have the context. And if you don't have the context, you're going to misunderstand the conflict. It's, you know, and, and Gaza is especially a subject to that. Let me just give you a, just a couple of kind of crazy facts, okay? 70% of the residents of Gaza are all refugees. You might ask, well, how do they become refugees? It's because when Israel began as a nation from 1948 to 1955, um, they began a process of emptying Palestinian villages moving them by force, getting them out of their country because they had a demographic problem. When Israel put up its flag in 48, the majority of the residents in the country were Palestinian. So what do you do with that? You push, they did, 700,000 Palestinians out of the center of Israel. Now, when it comes to Gaza, those areas in the south, like Ashkelon, they pushed Palestinians into Gaza and then they slammed the gate so they could never get out. Um, so you have, you've got like three generations sitting in Gaza under incredible poverty, angry as ever, asking, how is it that we end up living in this cesspool of a city and we are surrounded by fences? We can't fish beyond five miles. We, we have no control over anything from electricity to water to internet. And then for the last 16 years, We've been living under a full Israeli embargo. So we can't even trade with Egypt. We can't trade with Syria and Jordan. We can't, how do we trade? How do we, how do we prosper? So they feel as if there is this stranglehold that's been on them for a long time. 
my friend yesterday in Jerusalem said to me, we all have known that there was going to be another uprising. The tremors have been happening for about three years. No one knows when or where. Now we do. So the last uprising in 2000 came out of the West Bank. Now it's, it's coming out of Gaza. The problem for Israel is how long can you hold 4 million people in captivity when their average birth rate is greater than yours? How long can you hold 4 million people? The South Africans learned the hard way. You can't. Well, Gary, uh, this yeah opened up a lot, lots of cans, and this is an yep. important conversation yep. to have. Want to re- reiterate again? I know uh, with all the polarization, um, I think especially if you're not from the land or live in the land or have even been to the land um, or haven't done extensive studying, now's the time to not cling to maybe a narrative that you don't quite understand, but to to listen. And I don't. And again, yeah. I, I think listen, learn, learn, listen. Be a be a patient learner. Um, and if at the end of the day, maybe everything Gary says is actually wrong or his, that his narrative, whatever, then the, whatever. But like to get there, I, I think a lot of people enter in this conversation clinging to a certain narrative that they haven't really examined. And that's, that's what I'm doing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to examine and learn and listen, um, especially to a certain perspective, maybe that I wasn't bathed in for 40 years of my Christian life. Um, Coming, uh, why do you think, I did, I did, you, you raised this issue. It was really interesting at the beginning. I want to come back to it. Why is it so, of all the really hot issues that we can wrestle with, why is this one so, why are, why have you experienced such volatility around if you're not on the, you know, the right side of this conversation or a certain side? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, hmm, it's a really good question. And I, America, you know, is an outlier with this, I have to say. America's an outlier. Uh, South Africa has a little bit of this as well. Um, but America is really an unusual place when it comes to this topic. Talking to my parents' generation, they would say there's a degree of post-Holocaust guilt. My dad was in World War II, and therefore he had a commitment to this that just simply wouldn't go away. Okay, I respect and I understand that. Um, we have a very large population uh, inside of America that is very committed to Israel, Jews and Christians both. But I think for evangelicals, um, I think one of the very the key pieces here for evangelicals is that um, um, so much of the growth of the evangelical church came through the 20th century with revivals. <clears throat> and eschatology was a key part of the revival. Mm. So if you were to go back, if you and I were Christians, say, in 1918, 1920, 1925, say from 1918, the end of World War I, and say 1929 when the stock market crashes, here's what you would know. You would know that so many of the promising young men in our world are dead. A flu virus has killed about 50 or 75 million. We can't count it. And that there is so much economic instability that I have just lost everything in my bank account. Um, The kind of instability, and so therefore, the tent revivals that came out of that in America, especially with Moody and and, and these guys, what they tended to do is talk about eschatology. So these are all signs of of the decline of the world. And we know this decline is happening because in the 19, after World War II, we know that there is this Jewish migration going back to the Holy Land. So evangelicalism, if you talk to evangelicals at root, they have this instinctive reflex that in some manner, 
prophecy is being fulfilled in the 20th century. And that's part of the hope in a chaotic, unpredictable world. This is a key piece of hope that gets them through. So if you mess with that hope, that's, yeah, that makes sense. That actually makes a lot of psychological uh, sense. There's certain bricks in our worldview foundation that are pretty sacred. And you pull that out, if it crumbles, then, you know. um, Right. So I, I'm, I'm right now being asked to speak on the Gaza situation a lot, okay? And when I'm in a public forum, um, what happens is inevitably evangelicals will come forward and they'll open the Old Testament and they'll say, look, Zephaniah 2.4, by the way, is the tip. Um, Gaza will be raised. Okay. So, oh, gosh. But really? It, they- <laughs> it says that in Zephaniah 2.4. <laughs> I've had it presented to me quite a few times. But it helps comfort me because, in other words— The world is falling apart, I feel, but this is all in God's plan. And therefore, God is putting Israel where it's supposed to be. God is moving the nations where they're supposed to be. And therefore, um, my comfort is that um, it's all predicted and Christ will return soon. So again, if you go online right now, you'll see that the Gaza war, there are evangelical pastors um, saying things like, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Therefore, don't worry about it. And to me, that is a form of theological malpractice. I, I do. I, I agree with that. Uh, I definitely agree with that. <laughs> I may not know. I'm not. I, I may not know the modern political situation, but on the theological front, um, I. So, in conclusion, Christians do not have a theological necessity, um, uh, a mandate to support the modern state of Israel. Is that? Would you agree with right. that statement? If, that's right. So therefore, if my understanding of the covenant of Christ is the way it's been understood, by the way, for 1900 years and in the whole Reformed tradition. So if my understanding of Christ's work and identity are correct, if the power of his covenant is true, then it has upended all of those presuppositions which lead to a land theology for Israel. Well, Gary, that's a great note to end on. I can't thank you enough for giving us uh, so much of your time. I really appreciate it. Um, that's so, great to be with uh, you. Where can people Thanks find for you? Thanks engaging a, in the subject. You got a website, Gary? People can go check check out more of your work? Yeah, uh-huh. right. GaryBurge.org, I do. And uh, my publications are there. And uh, if someone wants to dive deeper into this, the one I'd recommend, prop, Jesus in the Land really does help with the theological side, but also Whose Land, Whose Promise um, is the longer book that just describes what the historical story is. And it is the second narrative that you would have to take in. Um, believe it or not, um, it has sold so much right now on Amazon. I think they're out. <laughs> and you have, you have to do an LE version, but you can go right to the publisher and get it. Uh, I actually Christ. saw that. I was looking at it today and I'm like, oh, it's only available in Kindle. I thought it was, uh, yeah, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. So, But anyway, it's, yeah, so... Good news for that. <laughs> yeah. So I've never the Kindle seen version, you can, you can grab it. But you can get it going directly to the publisher, Pilgrim Press. Awesome. Thank you, Gary, for being on Theology and Raw. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Preston. Thanks. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network. 